We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we start, I want to let everyone know that Scott and I went a bit long talking about this, so I'm cutting it into two parts. Part one, we're going to talk about the movies of the year, the best picture odds and nominees, our pick for that, how that trickles down into some of the other categories from a betting perspective, plus our favorite movies of the last decade. Part two, which comes out tomorrow, that's on Thursday, is going to house all of the picks that we make for each of the categories, and I'll compartmentalize all of those into one easy cheat sheet, which you can find probably up on dkplaybook.com. Either way, if you like movies, you're going to enjoy this. Let's go. Welcome to the Pat Mayo Experience. It's back that time of year, 2020, or I guess movies from 2019, Academy Awards, Oscars, picks, previews. We're going to go through the odds for the categories in case you want to lay down some cash on some of these, which, you know, a lot of the big categories. Huge favorites, probably not the best thing to bet on. We'll also run through an actual Oscars pool in case you're going somewhere and you have to make some picks. We'll have you covered for this entire thing. If you out there want to get into a draw for 100 DraftKings dollars, all you need to do is subscribe to the Pat Mayo Experience audio podcast, leave a five-star review, your DraftKings handle, and something you enjoy about this show, and boom, you're in that draw for 100 DK bucks. You want to get into a draw for 20 DraftKings dollars, smash the like button for this episode, leave your DraftKings handle in the comment section, and you tell me your one upset pick in one of the categories, doesn't matter which one, could be sound editing for all I care. But you do that, you're in a draw for 20 DK dollars. Winners will be announced on Monday's Pat Mayo Experience. Now, let's get into it. To help me break down each of the categories, he's been doing a lot of work for the Prop Network. So at Prop Prop Network HQ on Twitter, host of the Challenge Mania podcast, it is Scott Yeager. What's going on, my man? Hey, what's up, Pat? How are you? Yeah, listen, I'm doing well. This is one of my favorite one of my favorite things to bet on normally. The problem is, like, when you look at all of the big categories, it, it seems like everyone's just a huge lock. Although Glenn Close was a huge favorite last year, and she lost, so maybe there could be an upset in one of the acting categories. 
This year, the acting categories seem tough. Uh, Glenn Close was a favorite last year, but not a heavy favorite. Uh, she did uh, split one award early on in the season with Lady Gaga, who wasn't the one who ended up beating her. It was Olivia Coleman. But uh, truth be told, normally you do get one upset. Now, granted, when I say that, uh, it's more in one of the years where you have, you know, favorites, but they're not super heavy favorites. Recently, Mark Rylance uh, famously upset Sylvester Stallone when he was finally supposed to get that acting Oscar for Creed um, and, and whatnot. But these are like plus 3,000, plus 2,500 favorites in the form of Joaquin Phoenix, Brad Pitt, uh, Renee Zellweger, and Laura Dern. I, that's not the move I'm looking to make here uh, in an Oscars pool or in a bet. So those do look like chalk, but that doesn't mean that it's chalk across the board. If you're willing to look at some of the other categories, not the fancy ones, not the ones where the big celebrities going up to uh, accept the trophy, there's some fun still to be had out there, Pat. Yeah, well, Scott, you've been doing work just studying the lines from DraftKings Playbook uh, in the DraftKings Sportsbook throughout the course of the season. So you've seen a lot of these odds kind of flip-flop in certain categories over the past month or so, right? Yeah, and it's funny is I've been doing this uh, for years just for, you know, for fun and kind of, you know, tracking as far as like, you know, who the, the pundits are saying are the favorites to win these things and then who starts to kind of garner some of the other awards early on in the season. You've got your Golden Globes, your SAG Awards, your Writers Guild Awards, your Directors Guild Awards, your BAFTAs. Those normally come a little bit uh, farther from the Oscars. This year we have a shortened season. The Oscars are now this Sunday. Uh, just a week after the BAFTAs and the Writers Guild Awards and, you know, pretty much only a month from the Golden Globes, which is sort of a rarity. Normally it's about two months later and it's a longer season. And what I love about the Oscars, not just the, the fact that I am obsessed with films and I see uh, probably more movies that are good for me in a given year, is that it's one of the rare things where the narrative takes several shapes throughout the season. You know, uh, sometimes the most relevant film comes out in November or October, but this past year we have an Oscar-nominated film in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that came out as early as July. You had a movie like Get Out that came out in March, the year that it was eventually nominated for Best Picture. So it's really a year-round thing. And throughout the year, a lot of things take on different, you know, forms of momentum and different things gain traction. And because of that, depending on when you place some of these bets, it's an unheard of thing where you could bet something when it's a 10 to one underdog that by the end of it seems like a shoe in favorite. Um, we often look to some of these sort of deciding factors in the form of other, other award shows or, um, you know, betting odds and, and stuff like that, that those change more in the, in the realm of the Oscars or other sort of, you know, voting for winners uh, areas than they do in any realm of sports. You would never see, say, like a fighter go from a 10 to 1 favorite to a 10 to 1 dog. And that happens. The Irishman was probably a favorite in October or November. And now if you want to bet the Irishman and if somehow Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro pull this one out, you're winning a lot of cash. But that's because it's probably not happening. Whereas if you ask even an expert in November, they would maybe tell you that was probably going to happen. Well, it's a lot like whenever a book opens up like WWE odds and you can bet on the Royal Rumble and you can bet on it right. three days before, but then like stuff gets leaked throughout the week that you have a pretty good idea of who it's going to come down to one or the other. And then the, both those guys end up going to like minus 300 and they were plus 400 or five to one at some point. But the closer you get to the event, the more information is known is that if you were just a step ahead or you caught the books with their pants down, you, you could cash some pretty big money that way. That's what I've been trying to do. It's funny with the WWE analogy. It's often like, I don't know who this is, but there's some sort of whistleblower deep throat out there. Uh, some writer on the inside who decides to leak stuff 
uh, to the gambling sites the, the, the day of the pay-per-view once it's officially on the board. But until then, it's kind of a crapshoot. With this, it's not rocket science because there are different voting bodies. So, for instance, this past weekend, we had the BAFTA Awards, which are sort of the British Oscars. Um, and 1917 went and took home Best Picture and Best Director. Um, as you've seen, though, that hasn't really shifted the odds that much further in their favorites for the Oscars. Because people look at it and they think 1917, made by a British filmmaker, you know, it's about you know, Great Britain and their, their struggles in World War I. So it makes sense that it would win that award. Um, and so you kind of look at that and it's not the, the predictor that say the Writers Guild Award might be for that category. Similarly with the Writers Guild Awards that took place this past weekend, you had Parasite win Best Original Screenplay in a category that did not contain Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because Quentin Tarantino is not in the Writers Guild. That was not eligible. Those lines have shifted a little bit and Parasite has become the favorite, but not nearly as much as it's shifted in adapted screenplay where Taika Waititi and Jojo Rabbit beat um, Little Women and Greta Gerwig, who was the presumptive favorite, not just at the Writers Guild Awards, but at the BAFTAs, in a category where both films were up for it in both award shows. So sometimes you, you, it, it's as simple as seeing these other things happen and then people going, okay, well, that happened. That means it's going to happen at the Oscars. But it doesn't always add it up that way. I mean, there are people who vote for the Writers Guild Awards and for the Oscars. There are also people who maybe decide who they're voting for for the Oscars based on what the Writers Guild says. They almost maybe say, huh, you know what? That's who the writers picked. They know writing. I'll go with what they did. But there's always, I mean, look, this, this voting body is changing year after year. They're trying to make it younger. They're trying to make it more international. And you have stuff that is surprising happen all the time. Moonlight won Best Picture a few years ago as a five-to-one favorite going towards the end of that uh, award season. La La Land, La La Land seemed to be the presumptive winner. And then it goes to Moonlight. So that happens not that often, but it does happen. And that's what makes this really fun is that art is subjective. And although you can track these voting bodies and you can track the sort of the, the winning narratives along the way, when it comes down to it, if X amount of people decide to vote this way, you know, the people who bet on that thing end up reaping the benefits from it. So I think it's a really cool thing to bet on, especially if you know a little bit about it and you're tracking these kind of pivot points. And the line shifts so many times that if you know when these line shifting points are coming, um, you know, whether you know if it goes in your favor or not, you know that, say, this past weekend between the, the uh, Writers Guild and the BAFTAs, you know that the line for Little Women or Jojo Rabbit or Parasite in screenplay is not going to be the same on Monday as it is on Friday. So make your bet on Friday. Or if you think that what's going to happen is going to change the line in your favor for Monday, wait till Monday. But being able to do that is something that, as you know, Pat, by covering sports so often, you don't get that that often. I mean, something like a Super Bowl line opens up, it shifts a little bit in the first few days, and then it kind of hovers around the same point up until the Super Bowl. And then barring something crazy like Pat Mahomes going down with an injury, that thing's going to stay within like a point or two. Whereas this, I mean, we've seen some of these films and some of these categories take on lives of their own, particularly down the stretch here in categories like animation. Um, but those four acting categories, as you've said, have been pretty much in lockstep agreement, voting body after voting body for those, those four people. So if you're looking to kind of make a big play on, on Florence Pugh or, or uh, Al Pacino, I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing that. But uh, a lot of fun to be had uh, today and on Sunday, Pat. Well, let's jump into it. Talk best picture because these odds have remained fairly consistent for basically since the Golden Globes. When 1917 came in and 
won the Golden Globe for Best Pitcher. It's been a 1917 cleanup almost all of the way through. The only big category they didn't seem to win because they weren't even nominated was Best Ensemble at the SAGs, which went to Parasite. But right now, 1917, a minus 300 favorite in the betting odds. Parasite, 4 to 1 plus 400, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 7 to 1. Joker, 11 to 1. Then it's Irishman, 66 to 1. Jojo Rabbit, 80 to 1. Marriage Story, 100. Little Women, 150 to 1. And Ford versus Ferrari, which, if everyone's grandfather had a vote, would probably win Best Picture, but I don't think that's going to be the majority of the Academy, at least. But the shortened season for the Oscars, like you alluded to before, really seems to be working to the advantage of 1917, that it picked up all this momentum, it kind of hit its peak at the right time when voting was coming around, and there doesn't, if we played this out another month, I think that Parasite in 1917 would be very close in betting odds by the time, you know, three weeks from now, Oscars would happen, but it just doesn't seem like there's been any backlash to 1917. People all agree it's really good, but it doesn't seem like it's anyone's, like, favorite movie of the year. It seems to be cleaning up up, like when we get to sound mixing, sound editing, obviously, I mean, directing Sam Mendes is going to win, cinematography, stuff like that. It seems like all of the actual trades for movies love this movie, but people are like, yeah, it's good. Not great. It's good. So here's what's all a gift and a curse about this year. I mean, it's one of the best film years across the board I can remember. 1917, which is, has become the boring sort of predictive favorite, is to me just a very well-made, awesome film. I went, I saw that film in a, in a big theater with some great Dolby surround sound. Sam Mendes did a talk afterwards. My buddy who's in the PGA tournament said, that's the best movie of the year. I, and, and you know what? The, the thing that keeps other movies ahead of it in my personal rankings, like Parasite, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Little Women, Uncut Gems, which of course wasn't even nominated for anything, but these films and Marriage Story that, that I personally just are, you know, are sort of you know near and dear to my heart is just I'm more of a story guy, character guy, screenplay guy, and this is just a technical masterpiece by Roger Deakins and Sam Mendes. You know, there's no slight to that, and that movie does deserve almost all the accolades that it's getting. The one thing I disagree with is that as a better, as someone who, who talks about this stuff uh, professionally, at least this year, is that I like that Parasite's odds haven't crept into that sort of secondary favorite zone. Because I do think if you're tracking it close enough, Parasite is picking up the stuff it needs to pick up here. Uh, in addition to the uh, Screen Actors Guild Ensemble Award, which in the past few years has meant almost nothing because uh, Hid uh, Hidden Figures won recently, Black Panther won recently, that didn't necessarily lead to larger things at the Oscars for either of those films. Um, what it did for Parasite, though, was it reminded everyone that people really love this movie, um, including the acting branch, which is one of the, big, uh, the biggest uh, branches in the Academy. The actors love this movie. The celebrity actors love this movie. They're out there stomping for this thing. They're tweeting about it. They're going and taking a bunch of pictures with Bong Joon-ho at these parties and these events and stuff like that. And this movie has done a really great job about being out there. You know, a lot of uh, negativity is now surrounding this type of uh, campaign because it was created by Harvey Weinstein, who of course is the worst person in the world. But something he became famous for is these these late season awards pushes that got movies like Shakespeare and Love into the driver's seat and had it beat a movie like uh, Saving Private Ryan, which ne wasn't necessarily doing the glad handing that Harvey and Miramax and Shakespeare and Love were down the stretch. 
Neon, a small studio that is representing Parasite, is out there doing it and doing it heavily and well for them. They're on the cover of magazines. They're showing up on, on talk shows. My social media feed, granted, I've been out there stomping for Parasite as well, so maybe that's why, but Parasite is showing up in my news feed and Twitter feed almost on an hourly basis, and they're showing me every single clip from the New York Times and everyone who thinks it's the movie of the year. In addition to the SAG Ensemble thing, what stands out to me this past weekend that was huge for Parasite was everyone had Quentin Tarantino and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood penciled in as winning original screenplay. Um, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was not eligible for the Writers Guild Award. Parasite and Bong Joon-ho and his co-writer, whose name escapes me, goes in head, head and wins that, but also wins at the BAFTAs, where Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was also the favorite. It is now the betting favorite to win screenplay. I think that between the Ace Eddie Award that it won earlier this year, by the way, and a lot of people are saying, well, duh, 1917 isn't going to win an editing award. There's no editing in it. Between the editing award, which is another predictive category for future best picture winners, as well as the screenplay award, I do see a narrative where Parasite picks up best foreign film, best editing, best original screenplay. And although Sam Mendes gets the recognition for best director and Roger Deakins for cinematography for 1917, that Parasite does take the trophy home at the end. Every time I say it out loud or think about it, I get goosebumps, the same goosebumps I got when they won the SAG Award. I'm telling you, I, I still, and I, this is why I like it, because if I was out here talking to you about a plus 110 slight underdog or a minus 150 favor to be like, okay, who cares? The fact that they're still plus 400 or plus 350, depending on where you're placing your bets, it still is something to have fun with. In those pools, your uncles and your aunts and your neighbors, they might still be picking 1917. And the way to pick up a pool, especially if you do those weighted pools where best picture is worth more, might be to pick Parasite. I really still think on here, Tuesday of Oscar week, I think Parasite takes home best picture. Well, you and I are in lockstep with this because I actually bet Parasite plus 400 to win. I think we're going to see a reverse. That's what I got it at too. I think we're going to see a reverse Roma situation where you said like Mendes ends up winning best director, which it really looks like he's going to do. Roma ends up winning best international feature. Parasite is most definitely going to win that. I think it's the biggest favorite of any category on the board, but there's something it's not necessarily, it's not, human about it because it's you know 1917 is a very personal story of people i mean at the larger character is world war one and the camera movements and all this trade stuff that we talked about it but there does seem to be something resonating with just the personal aspect of parasite whether you know uh my producer paul tried to watch it the other night there was no subtitles attached to it so i mean that becomes a bit more difficult but i think that people want to reward it in this way where the spectacle movie um is just is 1917 and when people look at it and they want to make a long-lasting thing about it i think the parasite ends up winning so i think it's more of a toss-up than these odds would dictate so i do think that there's value at four to one that's why i ended up betting it yeah and look and and the the better of a secondary choice parasite becomes if you're someone who really thinks 1917 is going to take it those odds come down maybe that's your play to make which i think is cool how often does a betting favorite, even have an approachable set of odds attached to it. We talk about the acting categories. You don't even want to touch it. So 1917 is still in play from a better's perspective if you think that that's just the lock here. And, and if the stories so far have told you that's the move to make. Um, the, to use the Roma comparison, last year, Roma to me was like the technical marvel that 1917 is. Green Book was the movie that everybody saw and enjoyed. And, you know, you have film Twitter out there and they, they think of, of Green Book as this problematic movie and uh, the family of the, the character that Mahershala Ali played coming out after the fact. And 
you know, whether people wanted to reward uh, the writers of this film and this and that, that's all a very niche base that cares about that. And ultimately when it came down to it, backlash was put to the side, the voters enjoyed Green Book, they picked it. The thing that's different this year is Parasite, although it's a foreign film, Parasite's the movie people enjoy and the, the entertaining movie, you know, People sometimes assume that because something has subtitles, it must be artsy. You have to be kind of a cinephile to enjoy it. Parasite was almost like the most Quentin Tarantino movie of this year in a movie in a year where Quentin Tarantino made a movie. It's just this brilliant film that bends genres. It's funny. It's it's thrilling. It's amazing. I don't know one person that I, that I recommended it to that didn't love it. Um, I think some people who saw it later on in the cycle might think it might have been a little bit overrated by proxy if you kind of saw it after being told it's the best movie ever. But I ranked it as my second best movie of the decade or second uh, favorite, uh, most favorite movie of the decade. And I'm not going back on that. I really think it's that damn good. And I think to use the Roma comparison, 1917 is the one that's going to get the craftsmanship awards and when it comes down to it people are going to vote for the movie that they enjoyed something you said earlier that i want to touch on though the problem is with the preferential ballot and this is some really nerdy stuff that even i don't understand but i'm going to do my attempt to to regurgitate a lot of stuff that i've heard from other um oscars experts at this point the way that the uh preferential ballot works is that those 80 you know uncles and fathers and people who vote for uh, maybe ford versus ferrari is their favorite movie what happens is those ballots then get, uh, it goes down to what they put as their second favorite movie. And what the goal is, is to have a movie get 50% of the ballot. So if say 1917 only has 40% or Parasite only has 40%, they then drop out the least vote getting movie, which might very well be Ford versus Ferrari and take those voters second pick. The issue there that works against Parasite, I think is that Ford versus Ferrari, if it really is that ninth seed, um, I see people who like Ford versus Ferrari and kind of resonate with that technical marvel of a film. It's a very well-made film nominated in similar categories as 1917 to also loving 1917. So I think that maybe if a Jojo Rabbit for a Little Women uh, is the ninth uh, seed there, or Marriage Story or something like that, I'm more likely to assume that person's second favorite film might be Parasite. So that could come into play here and that could be the deciding factor. So as much as everyone thinks Ford versus Ferrari is this non-player and best picture, it could end up being one in a roundabout way. Well, I, I'm glad you hit on that in terms of the preferential ballot, because I think that same case is going to apply to Ford versus Ferrari. And I can see a lot of people who have Irishman ranked as number one on their ballot when that ends up falling off, that the next vote would also go to 1917. The reverse of that, though, is people who it's not just like Jojo Rabbit and Little Women. If we get to a point where Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Joker falls off the ballot, if those were the number one choices, I have a feeling that the number two choice on those ballots would end up being Parasite and more people would have them at number one yeah that's very true and you know we talk about how it's such a strong year it's very possible that parasite 1917 these two well-regarded movies just don't get a large percentage of the vote right off the bat because there are so many other films that are going to get votes you know i mean i have parasite as my number one ranked film of the year but once upon a time in hollywood would have been my number one ranked film of a lot of other years Marriage Story, which is my third ranked film of the year, I really, really loved. And if someone told me that was their favorite movie of the year, I wouldn't be mad at him. Joker, which I think has taken on the role as the bad guy movie this year. You know, it's, it's, it's ironic given that it's about the most famous bad guy maybe in superhero movies. But it's one of those things where it's nominated for 11 uh, Oscars. People are starting to spite it. 
it's still a good movie and it's still a great movie by superhero quote unquote film standards. I think Todd Phillips did a great job. And I think that we almost want to have a villain in a year where we don't have one. There's no green book this year. You know, there, there really is no shape of water, which to me wasn't a, a villain movie because you have Guillermo del Toro behind it, but became this boring best picture pick that year. We don't even have that. To me, any of these movies winning by by maybe with the exception of being Ford versus Ferrari, which again is still a pretty damn good movie, um, I think deserve it. So um, it's really interesting to see those preferential ballots are definitely going to come into play. I wish somehow, some way we could ever see transparency here. It'd be so fascinating to see like who came in second, third, fourth, et cetera. And, what comes into play. And until then we can all just talk about it to death without actually knowing anything. Yeah. It's funny. We're going to really hammer down on best picture here and talk about these movies solely because this is the most competitive of the categories that people actually care about. Like we can go on and have a 20 minute discussion about not only the differences between sound mixing and sound editing, but who truly deserves to win. But frankly, that's when people start to tune out of this. We can just tell you who we think is going to win. And Hey, listen, as someone who does sound mixing and sound editing in my day to day life, I love these categories. Most people don't really, give a shit so we'll keep hammering on this you mentioned joker as the villain i I think it's the villain for weirdly the fact that it ended up with the best pitcher nomination i think speaks a lot to and i'm actually kind of surprised that i mean based on the dgas and everything like that that todd phillips ends up getting a best director nomination i was kind of surprised by that just judging the movies on a whole but best picture makes sense because after probably irishman and 1917 the production design and all like the technical categories for joker are amazing like it really looks like an awesome like visually it's an awesome movie when the problem i have with joker is i I don't even know what it's about like it seems like it has a whole lot of ideas the performance in it is fantastic but once you get to the end of it spoiler alert like did this even really happen like who cares at that point it seemed like they didn't really want to commit to taking one thing seriously but they wanted to throw a really bunch of dark themes at you yeah, I took it. It's so funny. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people who really liked it. I really, I, I, I was very enamored with the how ballsy it was, for lack of a better term, and how unapologetic it was. And so many people, I think, were looking for a movie about the Joker. And people often compared the, oh, who's the better Joker? Heath Ledger, Joaquin Phoenix. This movie to me wasn't about the Joker. You know, it's the la- You know, in spoiler alert, that he kind of becomes the Joker in the last ten minutes of the movie. But ninety percent of it's about this guy. Who, you know, a mentally disabled person who's sort of abandoned by the system and disrespected by society and sort of what happens when we collectively turn our back on somebody because they're a little bit different. And, you know, that, of course, ends up, you know, there's some Batman tie-ins here or there and you see, you know, kind of how they have that through line there. But this movie was a lot darker and to me a lot more important for the current day and age. Then say just like a origin story of the Joker with like a couple of, you know, uh, crime caper kind of B storylines than it would be. Because of that, though, it's very haunting. It's tragic. It, and it's one of those things where when I got done seeing it the first time, I was like, that was very well made. I'm very impressed. And I never want to see it again. And I did go back and watch like one scene of it again. But, it, you know, it's one of those things where I was very impressed. Again, pr- production design, costuming, cinematography, the score is brilliant and probably will win. It's one of the favorites in that category. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is unbelievable and an all-around great acting year, I think. And I'm in no way upset that he's going to take that award, even though personally, again, the performances would speak to me a little bit more based on their kind of um, grounded in, uh, you know, what 
just 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 kind of how they're more a little bit close to home or, or sort of Leonardo DiCaprio and Adam Driver, though, a little bit more real than uh, Joaquin Phoenix, who I think had a little bit more room to play with, given that he's on this, you know, this grand canvas that is the Joker um, or Arthur Flick. Um, so I, I, I think the Joker is one of those things where when you look at the all the superhero movies, quote unquote, for lack of a better term, that people would have loved to have seen get 11 nominations, your Dark Knights and, you know, your Black Panthers and, and whatnot. And even in the same year that Avengers Endgame spoke to so many people that this is the one uh, that got the 11 nominations. I don't think it's that it didn't deserve them. And I think that unfortunately people look at Todd Phillips, the guy who made the Hangover movies and made Starsky and Hutch and used to make movie uh, music videos and got to start on Taxi Cab Confessions and say like, oh, the, another, you know, bro dude making a movie about, you know, violence, glorifying violence. And I think that's pigeonholing this film a little bit too much. And, you know, as much as I don't think it should win Best Picture, I mean, when you look at the awards it was nominated for, find me the one that it didn't deserve. Really, really find me the one that it didn't deserve. I think I think they stuck the landing and I think they put together a really thought-provoking film that for uh, a little bit of time did take over film Twitter as far as the, the thing to debate. You know, is this glorifying, say, you know, uh, violence? Is this telling people, hey, if somebody bullies you on the street, you should go and murder somebody? Stuff like that. And I think that's an oversimplification of it. I think Jojo Rabbit now you know, uh, is sort of getting a little bit of this late season backlash as well. People wondering if that movie is sort of glorifying Nazism and glorifying, you know, the World War II era, you know, uh, the, the Hitler youth things and making light about it, about it and turning it into a comedy. And I think there's certain people who are kind of choosing to hone in on that or I think missing the point of that film, which I think is another really well-made film. So every Oscar season doesn't need a villain. This one, of course, has one literally in The Joker, but that, that film to me is not a villain and uh, neither is 1917. And uh, it was a great year all around. And I think Joker, to be honest with you, is gonna come out of here with score and, uh, and Joaquin Phoenix holding trophies uh, for sure. Yeah, it could be an indication too that maybe 1917 is ripe for an upset that if Joker starts stealing some of the other technical categories from it, uh, whether, I mean, I don't know which ones they're going to be, but like, it was, what was the year when Mad Max was out and it basically just ran show through all the technical categories? What, what movie was that against? Yep. Do you remember? Uh, I want to say that was the, was that not the Moonlight? Uh, that wasn't the Moonlight in uh, La La Land year? I feel, it wasn't Gravity, but I feel like it was a movie like, that's the thing about 1917. It reminds me the most of the Gravity year when, um, Obviously, Alfonso Cuaron ends up winning. It loses Best Picture. Uh, and, like, we've seen this before. It's just funny because it's the reverse in this situation. Well, Sam Mendes is a, you know, a foreign director. He's an English director. And usually when we see Best Director and Best Picture go in opposite ways, it's the foreign director who wins Best Picture, whether it be Ang Lee or Alfonso Cuaron, and then another movie ends up winning Best Picture and why that could be very much inverted this year. But... As it pertains to Joker, like a lot of what it was trying, like what I meant by what it was trying to say, and I think it's now unfairly judged because a, it's a superhero movie, it's a big box office movie, and that's what it was made for. Billion dollars to get people in the seats, which it, de dollars. it definitely did, and that actually plays a lot to the Oscars as well. Being like, we want people to tune into this, we might as well have movies people have actually seen, and we've seen that happen over time. But now it's being judged against like the peak peak movies of the year, and really broken down into ways that are probably unfair for how 
when they originally set out to make this movie, maybe this is not what they were thinking about, but you talk about how it focuses on mental illness, um, it focuses on violence, uh, it focuses on like income inequality within larger cities and how that affects the population as it pertains to mental illness. It just feels like it didn't hammer down on any of those one things. It just threw a lot of ideas at the table and made them as dark as possible, where something like Parasite really hammers home on these things, and that's what elevates Parasite above something like Joker. Yeah, and look, I, when it comes down to it, you know, I, you, people do this for, you know, hyperbole's sake. I put together a list of my top 20 favorite movies of the year. Joker's somewhere in my top 15, you know. Um, now, the fact that it became one of the nine nominees for Best Picture, does that annoy me? No, because, again, it's in my top 15 favorite films of the year. And some of the ones I have above it, Uncut Gems and Booksmart and, you know, even Avengers Endgame. Like, I get why those movies are maybe not going to be nominated for Best Picture. So when you start to rack up some of these technical categories, the fact that Joker was honored, would it have maybe been one that I nominated for Best Picture? Probably not. But it's not as upsetting to me as, you know, when this and, and I hate to kind of kick somebody, not when they're down. Actually, she's at an all time high after that Super Bowl. Uh, halftime performance. So I think this is a good time to mention Jennifer Lopez for the longest time this season was the this, this shoe in for a best supporting actress nomination. And I saw hustlers and, and I didn't really love the film. And I, I thought that she was, she was good in it, but almost sort of as good as a, a lot of celebrities have been in sort of, you know, Hollywood kind of popcorny movies where they're, they're pretty good. Um, and she took on this, you know, this, the, the rocket ship was just on her back and she was nominated across the board for best supporting actress. And then when she got quote unquote snubbed for the Oscar, I was like, well, I'm genuinely surprised considering she was nominated for the Golden Globe and the SAG and all this stuff. But I don't consider that a snub because I never looked at that as an Oscar caliber performance. You know, I think that was just something where we just kind of anointed her as being one of the nominees. And when it came time for Oscar time, she wasn't nominated. A lot of people were upset with that. Joker, by the time the Oscars rolled around and I kind of had it penciled in as one of these nominations after I had seen all the nominees that it, nominations that had gotten before, I kind of like, you know, I did, I would have saw it as a snub because clearly, even though I don't necessarily look at it as a best picture caliber movie, it has, you know, by garnering so many nominations in so many areas, it was definitely one of the best, well, most well-made movies of the year that spoke to a lot of people. It, it takes a lot of people to see a billion dollar movie um, and to really stick. I mean, the fact that this movie came out in October and now all the way here in February, it's still a favorite in some of these categories speaks to it. So I think people are grasping at straws. I think in another season, in another year, where you had more problematic films to hang your hat on, I think people would be saying, oh, Joker was one of the more thoughtful movies of the year. Joker actually had some of the more serious and, and uh, more three-dimensional themes to it. You know, I think people started to spite the Martin Scorsese sort of, uh, what's the word? I want, you know, mimicry is the most sincerest form of flattery. I think it's clear that Todd Phillips was inspired by King of Comedy, Taxi Driver, a lot of that stuff. I wonder in a season where he's not competing directly with Martin Scorsese, does that bother people as much as it started to seemingly bother people? I thought it was really cool to see a movie about the Joker told through that lens of sort of 70s auteurism and dirty, gritty New York uh, filmmaking. So I love that when I saw it. And then I go online and I read that people are annoyed that he stole Martin Scorsese's aesthetic. So, I mean, I think it's kind of a weird thing that maybe three years ago, if it's competing against, as you mentioned, a, uh, you know, a green book or even a, you know, a gravity or this or that, maybe it's different. Maybe, maybe it could have been the exciting movie of one of those years. And this movie in this year with a lot of exciting movies, it becomes the problematic one. 
So what I was uh, getting to earlier when Mad Max started winning all the technical categories, it was over the Revenant. And the Revenant was the betting favorite that year, but not as big of a favorite as 1917 is this year. But it was an indication that even though Inuritu ended up winning Best Director and Leo won Best Actor, Spotlight was the one that ended up winning in the end. And it just showed that where it didn't have the support from all these different weird guilds that Mad Max actually did, that that really hurt the bottom line of those movies' votes. So I think that you could even watch the live line on this, that if something like either Ford versus Ferrari, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, or Joker ends up winning, like I said, like sound mixing or editing and stuff like that, like just picks up a few of those head-to-head with 1917 early on in the night, it probably means doom for 1917 as best picture. I think so. Sound categories, I, I am 90% sure that 1917 is going to pick up one of them. Now, you put a gun to my head and you say which one, I have no clue. <laughs> But I, I, I would not be surprised if Ford versus Ferrari does steal one of those. Not sure which one. I will say that if Ford versus Ferrari takes editing over Parasite, that I think is a knock against Parasite. And I think Parasite, you might be like, uh-oh, maybe Parasite's in trouble. But if Parasite wins editing, albeit a category 1917 isn't nominated in, that's a little bit of momentum. If Parasite wins one of these categories we haven't really penciled it in for, like production design, Hmm, maybe that also is something building momentum for Parasite. The big indicator early on, depending on how early in the show they, they air it, best original screenplay. If Parasite still wins that, that is, so in the history of films, you know, it's very rare that a film win best picture without winning an acting award, editing, or screenplay. And of course, 1917, not going to win editing, probably not going to win screenplay, not nominated for any of the acting awards. For Parasite to pick up screenplay, um, that would be massive. So uh, I agree with you with the technical category. Certainly if it gets swept in sound, I'm with you. But if it splits it with Ford versus Ferrari, I think I liken it to maybe the sound people just knowing a little bit more about the intricacies of what's editing and what's mixing than I do. Sometimes I try to figure that out and I just throw a dart and you know, just pick the same movie for both of them because you really don't know which is the one that, that it's going to win. Well, that's usually how most of this ends up going. If one wins one of the categories, it generally ends up winning the other one, at least over the past 20 years or so. But I, it's funny that you had mentioned Jojo Rabbit, that there was backlash to it. I feel like the backlash that you're talking about are people that just don't seem to understand satire. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things I had to see it twice to fully appreciate it. The first time I saw it, there were aspects of it that didn't upset me per se, but just didn't land very well because it does so seamlessly bob and weave between very over-the-top comedy and very obviously serious plot points and setting and, and it takes place during the, during the Holocaust. Um, and, and so certain scenes didn't really land for me and I was just wondering, oh, what are they trying to do here? Uh, even the inclusion of this uh, uh, hallucinating uh, Hitler that the kid, Jojo Rabbit, you know, sees, this is a spoiler to say Taika Waititi plays an illusion version of Hitler that's sort of talking to the child throughout and he does it in a very, very tongue-in-cheek fashion, very sort of Charlie Chaplin-esque uh, performance. Uh, to use a cross mustache comparison. Um, and and the first time I saw it, you know, I, I came out of it saying, wow, I really respect that movie, um, but I don't know if I feel the way I'm supposed to feel about it. Second time I saw it, it really landed and I really got what they were trying to do. And I really got that what they were doing was putting us as an audience in the mindset of a child during that time period. You know, you 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 read so much about this period now and you're wondering like, how could this happen? How could they get so many people on the hook? 
And the protagonist of this movie is a child who throughout the whole movie is talking terribly about Jews and writing a, a storybook about how he hates Jews and this and that and finds a Jew hidden in his house and, and wants to kill her. And you wonder, like, how could this possibly, is this kid evil? And it's like, no, this is a kid, this is his circumstance. This is the life he was born into. He's literally sent to a camp where they are treating Hitler like the king of the Boy Scouts. You know, they're teaching them to do missions and stuff like that. Um, the same way kids here in America learn how to get merit badges and, and whittle and this and that and untie knots. They're doing that, but with, you know, instead of untie knots, it's Nazis, you know? And, and so it's this movie where if you look at it on the surface, yes, is it probably not the best to make light of the Holocaust and to tell even jokes surrounding movies like this, but you know, the same way Quentin Tarantino, I think did a great job with Inglorious Bastards. There are different ways to approach these things to kind of make elements of history come out a little bit differently. And, you know, in a time period where I think people could maybe take a step back and look at something that happened not too long ago and wonder how the hell did this happen and how do they brainwash so many people? This is a way in through the child and through comedy that I do think gets a lot of points across that I haven't seen a movie get across. Some of the tragic elements of this film are really well executed. And, and I think that, you know, if you kind of go into it thinking, how dare they? How dare they? You're never going to be able to appreciate any of that because you're just annoyed at a little bit of the comedy and certain elements of it. But if you go into it thinking that the comedy is a vessel to get a, a point across a point of view that you can't really get to through just straight information and straight seriousness and, and whatnot, I think you appreciate it a lot more. So you know, I'm not going to tell anyone, hey, you got to love this movie, but I do think people are missing the point, as you said. One of the big things, and I think you actually hit this on Twitter, and I've been saying it on the show, is that I put off watching 1917 until I was able to go see it in theaters and really enjoy the experience, just because I knew how the movie was made. I didn't really know much about it besides you know, the unique visual style that it would have, but I knew that the sound was going to be really good for it. I knew the visuals were really going to be the essential part of that movie, uh, whereas I watched Parasite at home. I just sat down and watched Parasite one night, and it was fucking incredible. But there's an experience to going to the theater that you kind of need to see 1917 in that way. You see it in IMAX, even better. Uh, you probably don't need to see it in IMAX to really enjoy it as theater versus home, as long as you have the surround sound. I think that really does add to the situation. I feel like if The Irishman wasn't released on Netflix, it would still be in contention to win Best Picture. Yeah, I so I go to see a lot of the films in theaters because I go to a lot of screenings uh, here in New York. I'm in the Screen Actors Guild and I get to go to a lot of films with talks afterwards and whatnot. So I actually end up seeing, like I saw Marriage Story in a theater. Um, I saw Irishman in a theater. First thing I said, I, I'm like, I know this is going to be impossible for anyone living anywhere other than L.A. Or, or New York. But if you can see Irishman in the theater, see it because, look, it's still a long movie. Don't get me wrong. But it's a three hour and 40 minute movie that feels like about you know two hours and 40 minutes you know whereas at home with the cell phone and with things you know taking your attention span and this and that I can imagine it feels like three and a half days so you know it's one of those things where we live in a different day and age where if something's on Netflix that's probably going to be how you watch it and if something's too long on Netflix it's going to feel a lot longer and if Roma a movie that again I would argue was probably would have been a really great theater movie uh, I, I think that seeing subtitled films in a theater is very ideal because to me, something I don't think we realize we do as, as uh, film viewers at home is how often you look away from the screen, even if it's for a second to see if you got a text or not. When you're watching a movie in English, you cannot be looking at the screen and you get the point. If you're watching a subtitled movie and you look down for a sec, you literally don't know what the person said. You don't know the difference between let's get out of here and I'm dying. You know, it's literally, you have to read it to know. So a movie like Roma, I think last year, 
probably wasn't as enjoyable. I know me and my wife, it took us four sittings to get through it. It's like a horror movie for a pregnant couple. And we watched it when my wife was about six months pregnant. It took us three days to watch that film. I think going to see a movie in the theater, I know it's tough for a lot of people to do. I know it's really expensive. Uh, in addition to the screenings I go to, I'm also a member of AMC A-List. So I pay you know, flat B, 20 bucks a month, and I can see up to three movies a week. I try to see as many movies in the theater as possible because I don't trust myself to enjoy them to the fullest when I'm at home. Um, and so the other thing that's cool about seeing movies in the theater, depending on when you see them, is if you see a movie towards the beginning of its sort of hype train, it really, I think, affects the way that you are able to appreciate it. I know that people who watched Parasite Sight Unseen or watched it maybe with a couple of recommendations feel a lot stronger about it than somebody maybe now saying, okay, 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 I'll watch it. After 300 people say it's the best movie ever, you sit down, you watch it on Amazon, you're like, it was good, but come on, your best movie ever. Um, and so I think that you know, same thing with The Irishman, these other Scorsese movies you're, you're used to watching in the theater, and now you're watching one at home. And, you know, and I think that that's an experience issue that we're having nowadays that is, is one of those things you'll never know, why somebody voted a way that they voted. But I do think that the way that films play on screeners now does really affect, you know, maybe how they do. Green Book, Shape of Water, these are movies that are probably going to play the same to somebody on a screener as they do in the theater. You know, there's no like downgrade and enjoyment level. Um, whereas, you know, 1917, other than movies that I would say, I'd love you to get ahead of the hype train, see it when it came out or not have something spoiled for you, like maybe in Once a time, Upon a Time in Hollywood, the two movies out of the best picture nominees that I would say the most important to see in theater are 1917, just based on, you know, the sheer scope of it and how great it looks and sounds and everything like that. Ford versus Ferrari, similar deal. Um, and then The Irishman, because you're not going to just look at your phone 40 times in the six hours that you're watching the movie. And there are some boring parts of the movie. But I think that we're just more accustomed to watching movies and just sitting through it and taking it for the experience that it is when we're in a dark room sandwiched between two other people and you can't move. You're on your couch. The minute something starts to get a little bit of a lull, you're like, oh, let's see what Pat Mayo sandwich there. So, I mean, I do think that plays a part in it. I do think that hurt The Irishman. I think it hurt Marriage Story as well. I think if Marriage Story comes out in the... I don't know, beginning of Oscar season, maybe a, a nice weekend at the end of September, does a theater run and is like the, the big, I don't want to call it a romantic comedy, but relationship movie that people go to see. Um, and what I, th I think maybe it takes on a, a new life there. Um, and I think that maybe is a favorite for, for original screenplay for Noah Baumbach and maybe Adam Driver even is more of a contender in the actor race or Scarlett Johansson, who I genuinely think is 50 times better than Renee Zellweger was in Judy, a movie that absolutely no one has seen. So um, I have no idea how, how this happens because I don't know a single person who has seen Judy. And yet she is a 30 to one favorite to win Best Actress in a film that I think even those of us who did see can say, ah, it was good, you know. It, that, it really reminds me of Glenn Close from last year, who was nominated for a movie and was an overwhelming favorite in a movie. I legit don't know a single person who's seen it. I saw that movie on a plane, though, and that movie is 10 times better than than Judy is. Even The Wife is like a kind of interesting movie. And I thought, you know, what Glenn Close did was very interesting in that film. Um, but Judy, I just like, it's very paint-by-numbers biopic. You know, it's like, sim there was a movie this year that came out called Dark Waters, starring Mark Ruffalo. It was directed by Todd Haynes. And I saw it, saw a screening of it, and it's so funny because this is a movie that five years ago even would have been like nominated, best picture, best director, this, that, whatever. It's a very kind of paint by numbers, 
kind of a, it's a, you know, a, it's not about climate change, it's about water pollution and whatnot. So it's got a cause at the center of it. It's very like kind of eye-opening story. It's a very kind of legal drama. Mark Ruffalo plays a guy trying to get to the heart of this issue uh, in uh, in the uh, southern area of the states. And there's this great kind of uh, performance by Bill Camp, somebody who's getting diseased by the water, you know, and this, that. And this movie would have been in the old sort of Oscars template, just Oscar bait. And, and this year didn't get touched by any nominations whatsoever. To me, I thought Judy would have been similar, where it's like, okay, this is a biopic that would have landed in, you know, 1999 or even 2007. But this year, good luck, Renee. Sorry. But no, she's getting all of it. She's getting all of it. So that's the one, though, I do think if there is an upset, I'm not saying bet it, but if there's an upset, I think it's in that category. Well, or the, maybe well, the hardest thing with picking the upset in that category is that it could legit be any one of the four people, it would seem. But I had the exact opposite experience that you had with the Irishman in Romas, because I work and live very close to the TIFF Lightbox, uh, where they have the Toronto International Film Festival. So they have a lot of these Netflix movies in the theater there, especially upon premiere. So I went and saw Roma in the theater a year ago, and I missed The Irishman when it was playing here this time around. Uh, so I watched Roma in the theater, I watched The Irishman at home, and I had the exact experience. It wasn't even the checking of my phone. It was the stopping and starting, and just the initial, like, I'd be on Netflix, I'd click on The Irishman, I'd look at it, be like, oh, three hours and 40 minutes. I was like, well, I don't have three hours and 40 minutes right now. So I just didn't start it for the longest time. And eventually I had to be like, well, I want to watch this. Like, Fuck it. Let's do it. Let's just start it now. See how much I can get through before I have to go to work or I have to go pick up my son from daycare. And when the, you know, I have, I have the TV in the room where I take care of my son. So if he's around, can't really watch much because he's just making noise the entire time. And I do want to sit down and watch it. But I find it really strange. And I get that Martin Scorsese wants to make a movie, but there is no movie that would have been better geared for a four-part series than The Irishman. Like, it was almost cut into four parts as you went through it. Yeah, there's actually a really cool thing that uh, online that was going around online when the movie came out that, like, these are the points to turn it off if you want to watch it as a series. I just think that, look, you get Joe Pesci out of retirement. You got De Niro and maybe a swan, swan song role. You've got Pacino, him and De Niro reconnecting for a film, which they don't do too often. Um, and again, Scorsese and this huge budget. I don't know that because remember the budget based on the de-aging uh, technology, which we can argue for days over whether it worked or not. This thing was like a $200 million movie. This is they're getting that from Netflix not to get the uh, what's the award that it would be up for miniseries award at the Emmys. That's that's not a $200 million venture for, for old Netflix. They're coming hard for that best picture win. You know, they want that legitimacy. That's why they're going behind auteurs and filmmakers like Noah Baumbach. That's why they're letting Mike, not for best picture, but they're letting people like Michael Bay do whatever they want with a bajillion dollars. And that's why you say, hey, Scorsese, Pacino, uh, Pesci, De Niro, what do you need to make the, the movie out of the source material you found in this book that you guys really got behind? I think, yes. Does it work better as a miniseries? Sure. But like, are we doing a podcast about Chernobyl now? No, you know, we're talking about the Oscars. And I think Netflix, as much as Martin Scorsese, want to be in the conversation. If you're gathering that team of folks, it's for the Oscars. It's not for the Emmys. Look, Martin Scorsese's done TV before. You know, he was involved in Boardwalk Empire for years. So it's not something he's scared of. It's not something that's below him. But for this collective team and this collective budget, I think it's Oscars or bust. So... You can probably get around that, though, because the movie was released in theaters in order to qualify for the Oscars to begin with. And I know that they wanted to get people to sub to Netflix to watch this. But if you put it in theaters as a complete movie, and I don't know the actual regulations behind this, but then 
keep it as a movie, I guess, for now, but, like, once Oscar season is over, is there a cut where you... Cause I just think more people would end up... There's so many people who are so pensive to watch it because of its length and the time that they have at home that if it was, like, Mastermind uh, or Mindhunter, that, you know, it's four episodes, they're all 45 minutes each... And the thing is, they'd probably end up binging all four of them in a row if that was the case, because you just need to be hooked into it. I just think that there is a timestamp on this. And I know what you're saying about you know, putting it out there to win Best Picture. It's in the movie conversation. It's huge. Huge budget. Huge stars. The draw of it's huge. But if you just released it as a movie one way and then released it on Netflix another way, I don't think that would actually take away from it being a movie in terms of awards recognition, would it? Well, so there, so the one that jumps out of me that when this happened, I was very confused is when the OJ Simpson doc that yeah. was like aired, like an eight parter on ESPN or whatever it was. And then it's just uh, up for the Oscar. I thought it was really weird, but I do think there are qualification. Look, you read during the off season of the Oscars where all you hear about the Oscars are people complaining about uh, this rule or that rule, or should we add this award or not or whatnot? People would pick that apart. If word got out that they were going to then repurpose something as a miniseries, Trust me, the, the qualifications of it, whether it legally kept it out of the race or whether the stigma and the, 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 you know, the kind of the pieces written about it just started to bother people. It, there has become this thing, and this is what Netflix is trying to break down by bringing in Martin Scorsese's and Alfonso Cuarón's and this and that. They're trying to make movies so good that it doesn't matter that they're Netflix. But there still is a division between the Christopher Nolans of the world and the Steven Spielbergs of the world and the Sam Mendes of the world who want you to go and pay $20. They don't care about the $20, but they want you to go into a theater. They want you to have three hours during the day. They want you to go buy your popcorn, buy your soda, and see it in the way that they intended. That's what they think movies are for. Now, granted, if you can't do that in the nine months of that cycle, sure, watch it on Netflix, watch it on HBO if you need to. But they think that the awards every year should be about the movies that did that the old-fashioned way in the cycle. I forget what the dispute is, but there is some sort of a legality where I think the major theater chains won't, don't want to run a movie that will then be on Netflix like a certain amount of time later. That's why like Irishman and Marriage Story, they ran here in New York, but they were like IFC and like all these like kind of like Landmark 57, like they're not at AMC. And there's like a weird pushback between these conglomerates where they're like, hey, we don't want to, we're not going to like give your, your movie all these screens and this and that, if then two days later, you're going to let people watch it for free. So. I don't know necessarily who the dogs are in the race and the horses in the hunt and this and that and who's fighting for what, but I do know that there is a lot there. I wish, I agree with you. Wouldn't it be perfect if a movie like The Irishman or Marriage Story could come out, be in every theater near you for say six to eight weeks. Great, we all got to see it. And then when we all see it and great, we saw it in the spirit which it's intended, then our grandmas and grandpas who don't want to leave their house can watch it on Netflix. Or maybe if we don't get to it in the six to eight weeks, we conveniently get to watch it on Netflix. Why does it have to be one or the other? Why does it have to be it's a theater movie or a Netflix movie and nothing in between? The reason is, and I don't know why, but there's a dispute over that. They don't want it to be the in-between to be that easy because they don't want Netflix taking advantage of the in-between because that right now is the ultimate equalizer. The ultimate, like Netflix has this great advantage. Netflix essentially, if you think about it, turns the entire world into a screener system. You know, the same way selective people who are members of all these guilds because they vote get DVDs conveniently sent to their house and they can decide, oh, should I go see 1917 in the theater or should I watch it at home? Netflix sent a screener of Irishman and of Marriage Story to everyone who subscribes to Netflix. So to have that, it's sort of like, okay, you get that, but you don't get to have it also at the cool theaters and you, get, you don't get the date night also. Date night's going to be saved for, for uh, you know, Rocket Man. You know, date night's saved for, for Little Women. If you go into the theater and you're on a date night, you don't get to maybe see Irishman 
or marriage story because they have you at home. They have you when you wake up in the morning and you turn, you're lazy, you turn on the TV, you can watch Irishman. We don't want to let them have both just yet because that's when I think really they'll take over the whole thing, I think. It took us over 50 minutes to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is really sad because it's probably my favorite movie of the year. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it five times. I was watching it. Just I had it on mute when I was just uh, recording a podcast before I hopped on with you. Um, I think it might certainly be the most rewatchable movie of this year. Uh, I love so much about it. I, I, I feel so bad that it looks like besides Brad Pitt, who I feel great about, this movie is not going to be well honored. But again, it's such a great movie year. If it, if it loses Best Picture to Parasite, I had Parasite above it on my ranking. You know, So it's one of those things where it's just a tough year. But I really love this movie. I will say the thing that this movie... It sucks because you want there to be something to see in July besides Ant-Man. But the thing I think that's working the most against this movie is the fact that it came out in July. And I think that people kind of not forgot, but there's like a muscle memory with this stuff. And, you know, it comes out in July, but it doesn't necessarily come back around in like reviewable form. Like I said, I've seen it five times. But that's because I have it on a screener. Whereas like someone who loved it in July and maybe saw it twice in the theater like I did, you're probably not going to get to watch it again on Blu-ray again until like now or whatever. So it's like, you know... I think that sadly, that's not the time to drop your your best picture favorite. You know, any earlier than October, really, maybe September. But I, you know, they're letting you know it's just like that's a movie that everyone loves. But you know, maybe it's because of movies like Parasite being loved slightly more, and maybe it's because movies that aren't as beloved but are fresher in our minds, like 1917 and even Little Women. Um, you know, because they came out later. I think that's the problem that Quentin uh, and uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are having, unfortunately. But I, so, I love that movie so much. So there's a few narratives that can be at play here because it took us this long to talk about it. We both love the movie, but it seems, and everyone I talked to seems to have loved the movie as well, that maybe it's just, it's not controversial to say that you really like it. There's no like buzz to be made. Like, oh, you know what I think is a great movie? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's like, yeah, I know. Like, you don't need to tell me that. I went and saw it opening night kind of thing is the reaction that you get from most people. People are plenty familiar with Tarantino, everything like that. But there is a bit of stuff at play here. Like, if you consider Jojo Rabbit a World War II film, which it is, but it's just a different spin on it, World War II films and war movies in general tend to perform well at the Oscars overall. So maybe, although it's about World War I, 1917 and Jojo Rabbit could potentially steal a few votes away from each other. Or 1917, with the older demographic, old man vote, along with Ford versus Ferrari, could potentially steal votes away from each other. Parasite, maybe it's a bit too new for some of the viewers. And the big thing historically at the oscars is the oscars love movies about movies and this is what this is that maybe we're sleeping on it just a little bit that maybe it's more popular than we think here's the problem i think that anyone who loves once upon a time in hollywood loves parasite and i think that so i honestly think it's parasite that is, is stealing the thunder from once upon a time in hollywood and i think without parasite you have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood becomes the sort of anti-war you know, war movie or easy to vote for movie or late end stretch movie in 1917, boring. Quentin Tarantino is the renegade filmmaker. Ironically enough, I think this is the most approachable, accessible movie he's ever made. I think that you know, for 90% of this movie, it's essentially just like an old to late 1960s Hollywood and just a character piece about uh, an aging stuntman and uh you know average kind of actor navigating his way through uh tv roles in uh and guest spots like and to me that's a world i enjoyed living in it then has the big finale i don't want to give anything away that's very tarantino but i think in a weird way 
Bong Joon-ho and Parasite made like a full-on Tarantino movie, one that's, you know, really great. And I don't want to diminish it by kind of saying he stole it because he didn't steal it. I'm just saying that like, when you talk about the way that movie ends and how it kind of goes off the rails and the sort of things that Tarantino is sort of associated with, violence and stuff like that, um, great dialogue. Um, I think in a weird way, this was the wrong year for Tarantino to step back and make a movie where he really sat in the pocket. Because like, for instance, I think like in Inglorious Bastards, you know, it maybe has like a better chance of, of knocking off a parasite because it's sort of more in line with that as far as like how brash it is and how unapologetic it is and how Tarantino it is. You know, I, what I love about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is sort of probably what is causing it to not be the movie that all the cinephiles are waving the flag of because Parasite is sort of the more perfect example of that. You know, it's the one that through and through from shot one to the last shot of the film and word one to, to the last word is just going for it. Whereas Quentin Tarantino had the restraint in this film to make a love letter to Hollywood for three quarters of the movie and then round out with a finale based on the Charles Manson murders that intertwines everything together and goes like full on Tarantino for about 30 minutes. And to me, that is exactly what I wanted. But unfortunately, that might not be the recipe to combat everything else that we have in this fantastic year of movie. Before we get into the actual pool picks for each of the categories, where we can run through the odds on them as well, but uh, you had mentioned that Parasite came number two on your best of the decade list. I'm curious to know what number one is. Social Network uh, from, I believe the year is 2010. Uh, 2010 uh, the first year of the decade, um, which is one of my favorite years of the decade. Uh, there were a couple films from that year that wound up on my top 20 list, Inception and The Town also were on the list, but Social Network's a film that I loved at the time, but has really aged well, particularly because the, the subject matter has become such, I mean, when they made that film, it was, oh, it's about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. And now that is like such a huge part of just like our lot, not just our lives, because it was already a big part of our lives as like a, you know, on your phone kind of thing. But just think about it, you turn on C-SPAN and Mark Zuckerberg is out there talking, you know, it's a privacy issues. And the, the fact that, you know, that movie got there so much before you have a talk about being in the pocket to see a guy like David Fincher, one of my favorite filmmakers who makes films like Fight Club and Zodiac. And this is him using that skill set, the Mindhunter skill set, but about a movie about Facebook and, and Trent Reznor and that haunting score that he's used for movies like, of course, Gone Girl, and then recently on the show Watchmen. But again, about a movie about Facebook. Aaron Sorkin, I think, doing his best work ever. You've got people like Rooney Mara and Andrew Garfield before they became megastars. Um, and of course, I, I, one, of the, one of the great performances ever by uh, Jesse Eisenberg. I thought he was robbed that year. The film was obviously robbed that year. And I think that, you know, you watch it again with the director's commentary or you watch people talk about it on a podcast like Rewatchables or something like that. And, and it really, it, to me, it's a movie that has got, gotten better with age, but was already an A. And now it's like an A plus. And so I had that at, at number one. I was trying to compile a list like this myself, and I didn't I'll pull, really... I'll pull it up so I have it. I, I didn't really hammer it. I just kind of did, like, uh, went back and thought about it. Like, what were my favorite movies of the year? And I didn't end up putting it in the list form. I do think that... I think The Master is my favorite movie from the 2010s. Interesting. Yeah, you know what's funny about that is, so I, I loved aspects of that film... Um, but I remember the totality of, and, and again, when people talk about that movie, speaking to them, I don't disagree. Similar to Phantom Thread as well. Um, 
But with Paul Thomas Anderson, sometimes movies, I feel like, you know, to me, the bar is so high that just because I didn't love that movie, it almost knocks it down below further because I'm like, oh, wow, I thought I was going to love this. And I liked it. I really love what Joaquin Phoenix did. Um, but I just I, I, I remember it me leaving and not being like as enamored with it as I thought I would be. So it's an interesting pick by you. I've seen it on a lot of people's lists. I've seen Phantom Thread again on a lot of people's lists. Um, but uh, that movie also to me didn't speak to me as much as I thought it would based on how much I love some of his other work and so, some of Daniel Day-Lewis's other work. But um, interesting, yeah, I pulled out my list just to give you a, 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 just a quick context. Um, there's two movies from this year that are on this list. Um, so I'll just run down really quick. And again, I made this list and immediately I posted it and people are like, what about this movie? What about this movie? What about this movie? And like, they're all right. And they're all great movies. And so I really, this is a stupid exercise, but just for, for S's and G's, I'll, I'll let your audience know. Um, so I had the social network followed by Parasite, then Get Out, Sicario, Arrival, Inception. And then seventh, I have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. At eighth, I have the first Scorsese movie to show up. The only one actually, Wolf of Wall Street. Nine, I have Looper. Then 10, Edge of Tomorrow, I think a really underrated movie um, that depending on who you ask, ask is called Live, Die, Repeat Now. Uh, 11, I have Gone Girl. 12, A Star is Born from last year. 13, The Town. 14, Drive. 15, Lady Bird. 16, Moneyball. 17, The Martian. 18, Hell or High Water. 19, the aforementioned Creed, the uh, Rocky reboot by Ryan Coogler. And 20, uh, Black Klansman with right now currently sitting at 21, so the last one out, Marriage Story from this year, a movie that I really like and, and think it was actually more rewatchable than a lot of people think. So uh, so yeah, just to give you a context there, since I had it uh, right in front of me. Well, so we have a lot of crossover on that list, except for one movie, which is probably the worst movie I've ever seen, which is Drive. I fucking hate Drive. It is terrible. I just rewatched it, and it holds up. I really so. That, do, you, do you know what holds up? It's a movie about mood. Nothing good happens in that movie. The first scene is awesome, and then the rest of the movie is terrible. So I so here's the thing about that movie that I liked at the time and I liked now uh, and everything and, and to be honest with you Nicholas Winding Refn um, when I when I saw that movie I actually I went to a junket I interviewed him I interviewed Albert Brooks and and whatnot and I was like this guy's gonna go on and be a great filmmaker and make all these great movies and he hasn't made a movie that I've liked since um, but this is the one you talk about like staying in the pocket and Tarantino having restraint this is like the most restraint he's ever shown it as a filmmaker and again you talk about the mood or the tone. That's his bread and butter is like the look and stuff. And he nails it for this movie. But it's very simple through line narrative. It's just like, you know, this this guy who doubles as a stunt driver and getaway driver. And then he gets into the, you know, wrong stuff with the wrong people. You got great supporting performances by Albert Brooks, Ron Perlman and and uh, what's that? Brian Cranston. Cranston and you got yeah. Christina Hendricks from Mad Men. I said it's almost like when they came out with the movie, I was like, it's like he went on on uh, watch the Emmys. And he's like, all right, give me someone from Mad Men. Give me some Sons of Anarchy. Give me the guy from Breaking Bad. Um, and Ryan Gosling to me, by the way, there's a great performance by Oscar Isaac in this movie before he became a megastar. He's like the, you know, the guy who comes home from jail and he's Terry Mulligan's boyfriend. You go rewatch that. And you're like, that's really cool to see him. I love, I love when like cast age well, you know, like you go back and it's like a draft class. Like I always say like Black Hawk Down is like one of the best like draft class, um, you know, cast. But, but so Oscar Isaac there. And to me, like I'm a huge Ryan Gosling fan. So this to me is like this mega star performance by him, very toned down. He's normally known for his fast uh, quibbling dialogue and his, you know, uh, you know, his kind of uh, ability to, you know, smooth talk the ladies and stuff and your crazy, stupid loves of the world. But so I look, I get it. It's not for everyone, but I really, really like that movie. 
drive. Yeah, you, you could have replaced Ryan Gosling with a cut, cardboard cutout of Ryan Gosling, and it would have given the same performance. But the movie, the way that you talk about that movie, is the way I feel about Ex Machina. About you, it's also oh, yeah. another, another Oscar Isaac movie. But like, just getting, I love the premise of that movie. And, like, if you want to buy low on a cast, you have Oscar, Isla, uh, Oscar Isaac, Verkander, and Brendan Gleeson all in the same movie. Yeah, no, I, that, so that was one of the movies that when, when I made this list and then people said, what about this movie, what about this movie? So it inspired me to literally round it out to 50. And so I put uh, Ex Machina at 25. I really, I really like that movie, too. Um, it's so hard to do a of-the-decade list because it's one of those things where everything's in context. You know, it's like in a great year – you know, you see a lot of great movies and movies just don't have the time to speak to you. Drive came out in a really down year, by the way, because what I did was to start this um, project is I went back and I looked at my, because I always do a top 10 or 20 of every year. And I went back and I found those for all these years. And I was like, okay, mathematically, it should probably be about two from every year, whatever. And that year it was like Moneyball and Drive were like the only movies from 2011 that really spoke to me. So um, the, 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 one, the ones from that year that I'm looking at right now that I got on my sheet, like Moneyball, uh, Fast Five came out that year. Cabin in the Woods came out that year. Bridesmaids. I think that Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy is my favorite movie from that year. Wow, interesting. Yeah, Warrior, I think, was 2011 as well, I believe. Um, but I, Tinker Taylor Sol- Soldier Spy, again, was one I really wanted to love because I was like in my like the heat of my Tom Hardy phase. And then I come out because of this great cast and this and that. And it just didn't, again, it just didn't, uh, I didn't love it as much as I liked, like, say, uh, Munich or something like that. There was something missing from it, um, I, I, from that movie. But I remember aesthetically liking it a lot. Um, but, yeah, it's so it's splitting hairs. Like, every movie you just said, I really liked. You know, it's one of those things where you're talking about of a decade. I mean, I see uh, 50 to 100 movies a year. So you're talking hundreds and hundreds of movies. And, like, I put out this list, and my buddy's like, what about Spotlight? How is Spotlight not on your list? And blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, it's really just because it's not in my top 20 movies of a 10-year period doesn't mean I don't like the movie. Um, and even this year, it's funny, like, this was such a good year that, like, you start ranking the movies, and someone's like, oh, what do you think of Knives Out? I'm like, oh, it's like, like 13 favorite movie of the year. What? You didn't like it? I'm like, no, it, it, there's only 12 movies out of the whatever movies I saw that I have above it that I still really like the movie. So... Yeah, no, we have a couple of good crossovers on there. I really liked Arrival 2, and I really like Edge of Tomorrow. That, that's on my, like, short list of, like, movies to whittle it down. But, like, something like The Master and Phantom Thread, being a big P.T. Anderson guy, that the initial viewing of it wasn't, I mean, it's not to say it wasn't great. I enjoyed both movies a lot. But the more I watched The Master, the more it better got, got better for me. And I didn't love Inherent Vice all that much. Like, it's not even on the short list. But something like Phantom Thread like the expectations of that movie are so skewed because when you see it, it's basically a comedy. If you take it that way. Yeah. I need to rewatch that movie to be honest with you. I think what happens to me sometimes with films, and this is again, why I tell people, Hey, see movies when they come out. But uh, sometimes that doesn't even save me from this because me, I'm deciding, like, I'll give you an example of one. So it's like, you know, guys like Paul Thomas Anderson, Christopher Nolan, David Fincher. I love these filmmakers. I think I'm going to love their movies. So if I go to see them and I'm not like, this is my favorite movie. I'm going to buy the poster right now. It almost gets knocked down below a movie that I maybe liked a similar amount, but wasn't expecting uh, in a weird way. So like you go to see a movie that doesn't necessarily check all your boxes and you enjoy it. And you're like, like a movie that's on my list, you know, that I just love this movie is this movie by John Favreau, Chef, right? 
And it's just like a very pleasing movie. It's not shooting for the stars. It's not aiming to win any Oscars. It's a very rewatchable movie. And like, is, is that like a better movie than Phantom Thread? Probably not. But like, I went to see Phantom Thread, 70 millimeter, Lincoln Center, day it came out with my other buddy who loves PTA, Daniel Day-Lewis, et cetera. And I didn't love it, which means I like hated it. So it's like interstellar, you know, like I, I, I had it on my calendar for a year. Like it was, you know, uh, a holiday. And then I went out and there were aspects of it I liked, but I didn't love it the way I loved Inception or Dark Knight or, or whatnot. And so it felt like I hated it because I didn't love it. So sometimes expectations get in the way when it comes to filmmakers or actors and stuff like that. And that, I think happened to me with both of those PTA movies. So I need to rewatch both of them, for especially Phantom Thread. Yeah, so the only other three I'll check on there that I really, I mean, I really like the favorite from last year. That was my favorite movie from last year. And a lot of this has to do with, like, personal taste as well. Like, yeah. like you seem to be skewing very much, like, if you, like, drive that much, and even some of the other movies that you named, it's more of, like, a, how does this movie make you feel? What is the mood that is captured? Does it articulate that properly? It seems to be, like, very much on your vibe. Like, I really like dark movies that are also kind of hilarious. So, like, I have Whiplash, Nightcrawler, I really loved, which I think is just cool. Both are in my 50, yeah. Love both. I, I really love Nightcrawler. And, yeah. uh, and I think that Mad Max, just as a enjoyable, like, it's the best action movie of the past 10 years, I think. So I have, uh, well, you know what I think is better as an action movie, per se, if you're going to use that term than Mad Max Fury Road is Mission Impossible Fallout. Uh, but I, I liked Mad Max Fury Road as well. Again, was told it was like this transcendent, amazing film that I, I liked it, but I just didn't think I liked it as much as everyone else. So I felt like, wow, this can be everyone else's movie and I'll be okay on it, you know? But now looking back on it, it, it is very, you know, it's very straightforward, you know? So, um, you know, look, a lot of outliers come into play in a lot of weird circumstances. As I mentioned, like I saw Drive, you know, I got to sit down and interview Nicholas Winding Refn and Albert Brooks and stuff like that. That might have played a part, you know. Um, and so it's it's one of those things where if I caught that movie on an airplane, well, I probably would have not liked it as much, you know. Um, but I do, those movies you just mentioned, Whiplash, I have on here. Um, I have uh, the uh, Mad Max Fury Road, I have at 37. Um, but again, anything after 20, I'm kind of just talking up to like honorable mentions, I guess. Cabin in the Woods, I have at 50. Um, a movie I want to shout out because it's really small, but I think people need to watch. It's called In a World. It's a movie by Lake Bell about uh, voiceover acting. Um, Uncut Gems made my list. Zero Dark Thirty, which I think we all are supposed to like not like anymore because I, I guess I, it like- I rewatched I re it like about three weeks ago. Holds up and is still very good. That's one of the most like intense and just entertaining theater experiences I've ever had. I remember seeing that movie and saying, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. Um, and then I think once you're, once you've seen it, it, that a little bit of that digresses, but again, a very well-made movie that I think was robbed for best picture that year. Um, a little movie that I don't think anyone saw a few years ago that I really loved actually, uh, it's called Patriot's Day, uh, directed by Peter Berg, starring Mark Wahlberg about the uh, Boston Marathon bombing. Check out that movie. Really good movie. All right. Let's jump um, back. Let's yeah. let, let's jump back into the Oscars for this year. Uh, oh, this year, weird. Are we talking about this year? You don't want to know if. Uh, I mean, I, I could talk about this for. I could talk about this for hours. We we might need to come back on and just hash this all out. We'll do it best in the millennium, and I'll have to argue why. Not only is there we there will be blood way better than No Country for Old Men. Mulholland Drive is better than No Country for Old Men too. But you, we can save on that. We can stew on that for a little while. That's going to do it on part one of the 2020 Mega Oscars preview with Scott Yeager. Give Scott a follow on Twitter at Shot of Yeager. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to go category by category and make our picks 
for each of them. If you're filling out a pool at home, you can find the cheat sheet to that, but we got it all covered, plus a few of our favorite bets from some of those weird auxiliary categories where, frankly, most of the money should end up being made. For upsets, far more likely in those categories than the big categories. And if you just have a pool pick you want to put 20 bucks into because you're going to a party, make it super easy for you. Remember, if you want to get into a draw for 100 DraftKings dollars, subscribe to the Pat Mayo Experience audio podcast, five-star review, DraftKings handle, something you like about the show, and... For the $20 giveaway, smash the like button for the video. Leave your DraftKings handle in the comment section. Tell me what upset you think is going to happen at the 2020 Oscars. That'll do it for me. I'm Pat Mayo. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next time. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working. The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.